Well, good morning again, church. And I ask you to um, pray with me one more time as we dive into God's Word together, um, continuing in the book of Revelation. Please pray with me. Father, um, we've asked you to prepare our hearts, and we've um, experienced that through singing and through reading a confession together, uh, participating in communion together, Lord, and um, hearing your word read, um, and the reminder of uh, giving back through the, thing, the ways that you've given us. Um, and now we sit at the feet of your word, and we ask that you would give us clarity, um, insight, so we know what we're supposed to walk away from this passage with, and um, how you've how you desire to shape our lives, our hearts, our minds with this text. Um, now we we surrender this time to you, Father. We ask that you would do your amazing work of grace in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn to. Or Revelation 17, uh, those of you who've been following with us, you know that's where we left off. This is where we're picking up. The initial plan was 17 and 18. Why? Why so ambitious? Because it all goes, 17 and 18 is really, it's one piece. Um, but we're just going to do 17. I keep, you know, it, I uh, reserve the right to chop this down a little more. I just want to make sure that it's uh, ingestible and I don't want us to choke on, on the chunks um, but it's a lot. It's a lot there, and I want to do my best. I won't unpack every single line, uh, uh, but we'll move through it at a pace I hope that will give you some clarity as to what's happening here. But I want to set the table, uh, perhaps by reminding you of a couple of things, and one of those is that Scripture is clear that we are... Uh, through this journey of ours, you know, we're saved, we're Christians, but we're still exiles in the land, so to speak, right? And we're surrounded by the world and its systems and its pulls and its tugs, its allure. And uh, we're called to not be conformed to it, right? Instead, be transformed. Uh, we're not insulated from the world. We're constantly surrounded by it. And uh, preachers, a little inside, insider thought, you know, uh, view into what preachers like to complain about. Preachers like to complain about the fact that we feel like we get one hour to undo 167 hours of the rest of your week. All of your, the things you watch, all the things you listen to. You know, all, all, a lot of your friends, or maybe secular friends, family that aren't saved, dinner conversations that don't revolve around Christ. We go to the movies, we go to the mall, we go to concerts, we download the new album, whatever. We don't download anymore, but 167 hours of world, 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 world. Now, maybe not the worst expression of the world. I'm not saying we all go partake in sinful things, but even the mundane things that don't necessarily point us to Christ don't help us with the pull of the world. And then, of course, there is the pull of the world. And you decide you're not going to watch that movie, 
But the next five movies that come out have stuff in it too. And are you never going to watch movies again? And so you're like, okay, I'll give and I'll watch this kind. And little by little, there's this sort of attrition effect. A lot of us, we got saved later. Some of us, we got saved later. We remember that initial boost of excitement. God saved me from this wretchedness. You experience the wretchedness firsthand, and then God saves you from it, and then there's this attrition, and the zeal starts to die, and not being that holy becomes normal. It is normal because that's the mode of the world. And I realize I don't have one hour on Sunday morning to compete with 167 hours because lots of you, you go to growth group, hopefully you come to Sunday nights, um, Again, that's the church is like, let's provide some venues to, to push back against the other hours, right? Well, for many of us, it's, it's easy to forget how desperately we need to huddle and talk about the plan on the playing field. But that we're not supposed to be spectators. The second thing I want to remind you of is a very familiar parable of Jesus. Uh, Jesus really kicked off his his parable career (laughs) with the parable of the sower. You remember that? The sower has a a big bag of seed and it's throwing the seed everywhere, indiscriminately throwing it everywhere, the path, the road, the street, the field, rocks, thorns, it doesn't matter. He's He's just throwing it everywhere. But that seed doesn't yield fruitful result in all those soils. Now keep in mind, There's four soils, okay? The first soil is that rocky ground that the seed doesn't ever take. It bounces off immediately. And we we, we experience that. People that you want to share the gospel with, and they're like, I don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. The fourth soil is the successful one. That's the one where it takes root and it sprouts. And not only did it take root and sprout, but it, it bears fruit. And there's this sort of obvious change in the person's life. They're bearing fruit for God. That's the successful one. But there's three unsuccessful ones and then one successful one. The first unsuccessful one is obvious. They reject God. I, I, don't, li- I don't want anything to do with it. And then the fourth one is obvious because they change and there's fruit and there's growth. The middle two are tough. The middle two are tough because they don't outright reject it but they also don't bear fruit. Who are these people? Remember the soil that is, um, allows the seed to get um, in there enough to kind of sprout a little something, but if you were to dig, there's no root. And Jesus, when he interprets the parable, he explains to the disciples that because there's no root, the reason why that little green sprout just gets blown away so easily is because of, he says, tribulation or persecution. Remember we talked about, when is the great tribulation? Don't worry about that. (laughs) Think about the things, the trials in your life right now that are the danger of killing any life that is in you that wants to sprout. And he says the tribulation or the persecution come on account of the word. We're not talking about cancer. We're talking about being canceled. That's different. 
You don't get a disease because you stood up for God's word, but you'll get canceled. That's the persecution. That's the tribulation that Jesus was talking about. Not everyone is going to make it because it's hard to be a Christian in this world. You might immediately receive it with joy. There's a little green sprout real quick. Wow, this is cool. Community, people, morals. Y'all have a program for my kids? Until you realize you can't get ahead in your career claiming Christ. Tribulation or persecution on account of the word. I know I said we're in Revelation 17, but this sets the table. The other thorn, or the other uh, soil, was full of thorns. You remember that? And the thorns choke out the growth of that seed. And he says those thorns are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's what chokes people out. The cares of this world, the things I want to have that I don't have, the things that I have that I don't want to lose, all the things of this world, the material stuff, I care about it. And then the deceitfulness of riches on top of that is, well, if you were rich, you wouldn't have to care about it so much. Come do something to gain more. Come do something to chase wealth. And you don't have to worry as much. Rather than Jesus being your reason to not worry, your riches are your reason to not worry. And so you chase it. Maybe your other 167 hours aren't spent binging Netflix, but being a workaholic because you're trying to secure your future on your own terms. And that type of person gets choked out. Now, the book of Revelation is full of weird stuff. I told you that. You already knew that going in. There's beasts. There's there's, uh, horns. There's creatures. And today we're going to see a, a great harlot, a great prostitute woman that rides the beast. What in the world, man? Now listen, before we might get lost in the details, hopefully we don't, I want to set the table and help you understand Revelation doesn't give us anything new. Revelation puts in picturesque, vivid, apocalyptic imagery things that are already true throughout the rest of Scripture. And as we think about especially those two middle thorns, the ones that they go to church, they, they say they want to follow Christ, but the world pulls them out. Rather than being transformed and renewed in their minds, they conform to the world and don't make it. Those aren't the conquering saints. And so Revelation is full of hope. It's also full of warning and caution so that you don't get sucked into the world. Do you think you have to know the exact name of the politician who rises to be the final Antichrist in order to be warned? Let's not spend hours upon hours either ignoring Revelation or nitpicking the historical details to try to nail down which politician it is and instead endure. That is the call. Now as we look at Revelation 17, hopefully that setting the table being the background for us, we're going to see here in this text an angel give John a closer look at that final bowl of wrath. Remember we went through the seven bowls of wrath in one shot and one sermon. I know it was hefty, 
but it culminates in that there's this bowl, this bowl, this bowl, this bowl. Hey, they're not repenting. This bowl, they're not repenting. Final bowl. No more chance to repent. It's over. Okay, so God rolls out, pours out his wrath from these bowls. And chapter 17 and 18 is basically changing the camera angle to show you what's happening in that final bowl. In chapter 17, you see the rise of this prostitute, which I'll explain in a minute. And then in 18, the fall, which is the God puts an end to it. And in this vision, we are further encouraged to not be allured by the world. Why? Oh, I wrestled with this. Do I put up on here all the different options? The prostitute might be this. The prostitute might be this. Let me just go in and explain to you what I think the prostitute represents. The great prostitute of Revelation 17, and we'll read the first six verses in just a moment, but let me just lay the table by saying the great prostitute of Revelation 17, I think, is simply the great infidelity of the world. We can talk about countries, kingdoms, kings, politicians, but they all fit the bill. That's why it's so hard to interpret some of this stuff. Why do they fit the bill? Because it's about the infidelity of the world. Let's look at the first six verses here. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. You see in this text, the phrase sexual immorality come up three different times just in those six verses there. And then, of course, there's the imagery of the prostitute, what that is so this this theme of sexual morality is is the theme now look you can look at this and be like oh this is about a particular sin no it's about how that particular sin represents infidelity to god have you ever read the proverbs what is woman folly like what is it like to reject god's truth god's wisdom and go down the path of doing what you feel like doing it's immorality sexual immorality is the is the imagery there she calls, she's seductive, she wants you to come to her house, she tells you no one's going to see, no one, you're not going to get caught, my husband's away. You remember that, we were in the Proverbs not long ago. So this is drawing on that imagery, it's not about sexual immorality, although that can be one of the ways in which we conform to the world, but it's the imagery of going, you know what God, I'm, I'm, we're, so we're supposed to be faithful to you as our creator, but we spurn you, and we do what we want. And that's the image captured here by the prostitute 
She rides this beast, and if it sounds familiar, this beast with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns is because that's the beast we saw in Revelation 13. I'm not going to pack all of those details because we did that in Revelation 13. But just as a reminder, the beast represents the dragon's human employments to persecute the church. You remember that? So the, the beast represents, the dragon is Satan, and Satan employs, utilizes, dispatches human, almost avatars on this earth to uh, promote his agenda. And in that agenda is to make sure people are the, one of the first three soils and not the fourth one. And he's perfectly content with people going, no, no, I'm Christian, as long as you're the second or third soil, as long as you're weak enough for him to choke you out, as long as you're not steely-spined enough to withstand persecution. You have no courage, you have no boldness, you go with the flow, and as long as the flow is, fits Christianity, you're good. He's good with that, because he'll just change the flow and then expose that you're not a Christian. So this is... Satan's strategy to use power, worldly governments, rulers, kings to advance his agenda in this world. And that's the connection between the prostitute and the beast. She wants people to be unfaithful and she uses the power of the beast to enforce it. Come join me in my unfaithfulness. You see that in verse 5. On her head is written the mystery name, Babylon, great mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And how is she a mother of prostitutes? How does she give birth? How does she, well, she uses power to do it. And verse 6 says, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's her agenda. To stamp out Christians and Christianity. So that's what's happening here with the prostitute and the beast. Now, obviously, the prostitute has a name. It's written right on her forehead, right? Babylon in verse 5. But what does Babylon mean? That's, that's the issue. Well, of course, there's Babylon, literal Babylon, the city, uh, the empire uh, that oppressed God's people, Israel, and put them in exile. You remember that? But now John's vision uses Babylon as a figure for, for Rome who at that time, in John's time, was oppressing God's people, true Israel, the church. Follow? So John's readers are like, oh, remember Babylon? That big city with all the power and how they oppressed God's people that were living as foreigners in the land? Oh, that's us now, but instead of Babylon, now it's Rome, and instead of ethnic Israel, it's, it's Christians. That's what's happening here with this image. Now, the prostitute is channeling that infidelity motif, right? Unfaithfulness toward God, and that's the main thing. The infidelity and carrying on with abominations, detestable, disgusting things, the things that grieve God's heart, that God hates, and also oppressing the saints. Some of you have friends that the, the more you grow in Christ, the holier you get, the more they resent you for it. And you're like, what I do? I'm just trying to chase Christ. Sometimes we have Christian friends that are like that. Like, oh, oh, what do you get? Oh, uh, let me guess. You don't watch movies like that. Why are you upset about it? You know why they're upset about it. The sting of a pricked conscience. 
Non-Christians, oftentimes the reason, the beef that they have with Christians is the pricked conscience. So it's not just that they want to chase abominations. They don't like that you don't do it. And the prostitute represents this, this idea of unfaithfulness. Let's cheat on God. And if you don't cheat on God with me, I hate you. And I'm going to use the beast to kill you. That's the play. Babylon did it. And thereafter, any earthly power that does the same thing fits the image, just like Rome. So Rome fit the image. And John's vision applies to Rome, as we'll see in a moment. But um, as, as Richard Bauckham put it, a, a, an author, scholar who's written on Revelation, he's basically, he, he's like, look, any city or empire for whom the shoe fits is Babylon. And, and I, think that's, I think that's correct. Now, God accused Israel of infidelity in the Old Testament. A lot of times the infidelity stuff is about Israel, and that's true. But he also used that imagery for, for non-elect nations. He used that, that you're cheating on me and therefore I'm going to punish you motif with Nineveh. He used it with Babylon. He used it with Tyre. Even though they weren't God's elect, they're still God's creation. And they're still under God and they reject him, especially rejecting, rejecting him by persecuting those who don't reject him. That's how the shoe fits. I hate you. I reject you. I want others to reject you, and when they don't, I want to kill them and silence them. That's how the shoe fits. So the prostitute is infidelity, unfaithfulness to God in order to gain wealth, material possessions, and the beast she rides symbolizes, again, the human employments on earth that carry out the persecution of God's people, the saints. This beast that she rides, obviously, is the beast from chapter 13. It's the same description. And that beast fits Rome and the Roman government, but it also transcends Rome. Again, the shoe can fit in multiple eras within this church age. Verse 4 tells us her attire is rich and attractive. That's part of her allure, right? Her allure, it's, it's, uh, she's sexy. She doesn't look abominable. She doesn't look off-putting. Just like woman folly. She's got the clothes. She's got the hair. She's got the jewelry. She's, her cup is gold. Like She's got it all going on, and not just in a sensual way, but she's got the goods. She's got wealth. She has material. If you get with me, you can enjoy the perfumes and the oils and you can drink out of gold cups too. That's the allure. But it's all looks. And really, if you look inside that beautiful cup, it's full of disgusting things. That golden cup is ironic because it's only beautiful on the outside, but the contents that she's drinking from it and that she wants others to drink from is earth's abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality that includes martyrdom verse 6 killing saints but it's not just limited to that it's all the things that we want to do and the reason why we want to kill saints is because we want to do what we want to do 
So anytime there is that small sliver of temptation for us to stifle, mock, make fun of the spiritual advancement of someone else, that's prostitutish. Stop that. Encourage the growth of someone else. Just admit, I wish I were there, but I'm not there right now. Would you pray with me? But it is, it is the immorality of the world to stifle growth in Christ. They hate it, and they want to stamp it out. They want to chase their disgusting, loathsome things, and they want you to go along with it. They want you to conform. And so there's nothing really new here. It's a call for the churches to endure. This is not a book of precise predictions to argue over. Instead, this is a book of warning and encouragement. Warning if you're not in Christ or you think you're in Christ, but you're really not. Encouragement for those of you who are in Christ, but you feel weary of the fight. You get tired of constantly feeling the vacuum pull of the world and you're like, oh, maybe I'll just give a little bit. Don't, don't give a little bit. Hang in there. We see this uh, in the angel's explanation. The angel unpacks a little bit this, this mysterious uh, image in the next few verses. But I want you to see there that the angle is the angel wants John to be encouraged, not bewildered. Let's pick it up in the end of verse 6. Um, yeah, I'll read it straight through and then we'll... we'll make a few observations John writes when I saw her I marveled greatly but the angel said to me why do you marvel I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not received, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion 
over the kings of the earth. Well, <laughs> there's a ton to unpack there. But I hope I laid enough groundwork for you to kind of see what's happening here. And I think I probably teased this just enough for you to know I'm not going to put a PowerPoint slide up here naming each of the kings with dates next to it. And then my musings as to which one is coming. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Some feel very confident doing that. I'm not sure that works. But let's just try to make a few observations first and then we'll bring it home. The angel wants John not to marvel. I don't think John was marveling like, wow, cool. I think he was upset. I think he was marveling in a way where he's, it's fearsome. Who can stand up to this woman who wields the power of this beast with multiple heads and multiple horns and all these blasphemies and, and no one's stopping her. She just keeps gaining wealth and gaining riches and she keeps getting new chains and new earrings and new golden cups and she keeps filling it and refilling it. The bottomless cup, it seems like, of any abomination she wants and killing all the saints. He's not like, cool, can I take a picture? He's like, what in the world, man? What are we supposed to do? And I think when the angel says, hey, don't marvel at this, I don't think the angel is saying, it's not that crazy. It's not that big of a picture. I think the angel is going, relax. I'm going to explain this to you. And what he explains is pulling back the curtain so, you can, so that John can see what's happening behind the scenes, the, the, the use of the human employments and the kings that rise and fall, but they always fall and they always end in destruction. And in the end, the Lord is the one that wins, verse 14, and they turn on themselves, 15 to 18. They just, all those, the, the beast ends up turning and devouring the woman. This whole operation self-implodes. So in other words, John is marveling in a way where he's kind of fearful, I think, and then the angel goes, let me explain it to you, and tells him why you shouldn't be afraid. It's scary, but don't be afraid, because Jesus wins, all his saints with him whose names are written in the book of life win with him, and they self-implode, and God does it. That's the, essentially the outline of the rest of 17. This whole idea about the beast was, is not, is about to rise. It's, it's kind of strange. But it's because the beast imitates Christ. It can't be Christ, but it tries to be Christ. It sounds like, but falls short of the loving God, the living God, who, remember Revelation 1, 4, who is, who was, and who is to come. This one was, is not, is about to rise. See, it's close, not there. And of course, Jesus is the living one, chapter 1, verse 18. He's the living one who, even though slain as a lamb, lives forevermore, it says. No destruction. He lives forevermore, but this ends in destruction. See, tries to be him, can't be him. Tries to wield the power, doesn't have the ultimate power. Thinks it is unstoppable, oh, very stoppable. That's the angle here. The beast rises only to experience destruction. Which human was that? I want to say pick one. Pick an empire, pick a kingdom. Where are they now? All these conquerors that you read about and they took over the world, man, unstoppable. Where, where's the guy now? They rise, they fall. They rise, they fall. There always was and is about to come, but they always end in destruction. 
Now, at the risk of just taking a couple extra minutes, I want to make a brief note about interpreting Revelation. You know how some of us have a hard time with the flexibility of symbols in Revelation? How can the trumpets and the seals be the same thing? They can't be, right? Um, Because we, we don't see them as flexible. But let me explain something, and I think this is, this is important to understand here, that um, symbols are flexible. You remember back in the beginning when John hears the Lion of Judah, and he turns and sees a lamb. Whoa, there's two animals. Okay, two animals, one referent, right? Which is Jesus Christ. We don't question it because we're used to it. We don't go, well, there's a lamb, but which one's a lion? When's a lion coming? Where's the lamb at? Symbols, multiple symbols can refer to a singular referent. And also, it's also true that a single symbol can carry the weight of multiple reference. One symbol can mean a couple different things, like you saw here. Is it mountains or is it kings? Yes. How can it be mountains and then in the next line, the mountains are also kings? Because the angel said so. That's why. Well, that's not literal interpretation, you know. It's figurative. And it's, it's, it's flexible. But it doesn't mean mountains and then seven loaves of bread. It, it stays in this realm of mountains means power and ruling and kings. Of course, Rome was known for, as the, the city of seven hills or seven mountains. So it's specifically talking about Rome. But it's, the seven is completeness and comprehensive power. We saw that before when we unpacked the beast. And so again, the symbol is about rain it's about ruling. What does the mountains mean? What, what do mountains mean? What do kings mean? It's, it's the, the human employments that look so powerful and undefeatable in whatever generation you're in. Nothing's going to stop this. So I guess I should give in. Don't give in because that will be stopped. Just bear with it. Endure. Because it will come to an end. So I think there's a problem with identifying kingdoms with each of the kings and tracking it down okay this one was Nero this one was this guy if you go backwards it's this guy well then who's the seventh one coming or if you do it with kingdoms okay there's five of them before the sixth one is the one that John is in so if you go backwards there's five and okay you got Assyria and you've got Egypt and you got whatever but then what's the one that's coming is it the barbarians (laughs) is it centuries later is it is it Nazi Germany Is it going to be America? You know, I think we run into problems when we try to nail it down that way instead of approaching it by saying, I think seven represents this this comprehensive authority that the the beast wields throughout the church age. It happens again and again, but the focus here is the rising and the falling. It's coming, it isn't, it is. But it meets destruction, verse 11. It goes to destruction. Verse 14, they make war on the lamb, but who wins? The lamb conquers in the end. So these governing, ruling human systems and authorities that persecute believers in 14, they end up being conquered. Believers are the ones that conquer because they cling to the lamb who is over every lord, who is over every king because we're called chosen and faithful. Now, some Christians really emphasize we're called and we're chosen. And sometimes those Christians don't emphasize as much effort and work. Some Christians really emphasize effort and work. You've got to make it. 
You're not going to make it if you don't read the word and get together and study. And, and you've got to put an effort. There's got to be a holy zeal. You've got to make it. You've got to be faithful. And they sometimes de-emphasize grace. And that we're only in this not because we scratched and clawed our way toward conquering, but because we're called and Jesus wrote our name in a book. And that's what does it. But Revelation emphasizes both together. We've seen this multiple times in the book of Revelation already, but here it is again. Called and chosen, but not comfortable, not lazy, faithful. That's the call. You might leave here going, oh man, I'm not any clearer on what a beast is. I, I, I understand. But if you leave here going, I have no idea what this wants for me, then I, def- I definitely struck out this morning. Faithfulness and endurance, even in the face of the allure of the world. As beautiful as she may look, you don't drink her cup, no matter what it costs. We don't, we're not overwhelmed by the power of the prostitute's allure. We take comfort only in Christ's victory. That's our comfort. And if it doesn't look like victory now, you trust that it's victory later. That's why Revelation is here. Trust that that victory is coming and that victory is now. And that saints that follow Christ are conquerors. But if you ditch that, the losing team, to go with the winning team, you've misunderstood things. That's the losing team and you've ditched the winning team. So your name is written in the book of life. Verse 8, how? When you're called, chosen, faithful. Verse 14. Just like we talked about in our communion time, that is done through faith in Christ. You place your faith in Christ, he reconciles us, and that's why we can be called to transform and not be conformed. Outside of reconciliation with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have the ability to transform and be renewed. We, we will only conform. But Paul's whole point in Romans is you do have the ability to not remain the wretched man that I am, right? But to fight and to struggle and to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. All right, let me bring this home with just a couple words of application and we'll close. I know there's, there's so much here. One is we need to have stronger stomachs, have stronger spines by God's grace and endure. This is a call that helps us deal with the threat of comfort or the threat against our comfort. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with having things, achieving things. I think we should, as Christians, I think we should be ambitious and um, get good jobs, get good education, you know, be uh, the best citizens we can in this world. But the prostitute riding the beast represents both the offer of greater comfort than you currently have or the threat of taking the comfort you currently have down a notch or removing it altogether. The prostitute represents the call, hey, come and get more stuff. You feel comfortable now? What about tomorrow? What about the future? Gain more stuff. Come follow me. Now, you don't have to worry about heat. You don't have to worry about getting canceled. Just do the pronouns in the Zoom, man. Just follow the lies. Look the other way when we mutilate the bodies of children. Don't speak up. You like a career, don't you? You want a raise, don't you? 
The call is more comfort. Get more comfortable. Increase your comfort. If you don't, then it's the threat of the beast. I'll take what you have. It's not just that you won't get the promotion. How about losing the job you already have? And so just a real quick word, those of you who are younger, teens and young adults, and you're thinking about careers in the future, you need to think about the kinds of careers that are, that are going to put a kind of squeeze on you. Now, we're all going to get squeezed, but, but some career choices might put a particular squeeze on you that wouldn't, be exist, that wouldn't be as tight of a stranglehold in other career choices, something to consider. But we all need to grapple with this. And I thought of this, you know, I thought, boy, if I were sitting there and I were you, I'd be like, well, easy for you to say preacher. Uh, probably in your elders' meetings, they're not like ready to cancel you. Well, preachers experience a different kind of pressure because we want to fill these seats. And I'm not going to fill these seats preaching Revelation 17. I'm not. I'm not going to fill these seats going, go against the world. But if I'm like, hey, it's easier than you think. It's easier than you think. Then it'll be easier to stomach the sermon. It wouldn't feel like such a rebuke all the time. Ugh. Nobody likes that. But we have itching ears and preachers are tempted to scratch those itches because if I scratch those itches, they'll come back. And if they come back, what do they do? Maybe more people means more giving and more giving means what for the preacher? More comfort. And not just the money giving, but the psychological comfort of, look, fool today. I must be doing something right. Any preachers listening to this online or our preachers here? Don't preach for comfort. Preach truth and model for your people what it means to have a steel spine. That doesn't mean we're jerks. Hopefully you don't hear me up here like, y'all are going to hell. And I love it. No. With broken hearts, with broken hearts and the winsomeness of, of loving neighbor, we extend the truth. But we're not going to follow the call of woman folly and drink her abominations. Final thing quickly. Uh, I'm doing this to myself, but if any of you were paying attention when we were reading it, did you catch verse 17? Did you catch verse 17? They're, they're, okay, the people turn on her, right? The people turn on her. This whole operation is, is imploding. And verse 17 says, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God put it? Now listen, I, I don't care what you think of Calvin, Reformed, forget all that stuff. I'm not up here, I don't have 1689 tattoos, I'm not Presbyterian, you know, I've not let my beard grow to a, a, a cool kid reform length, all right? I just, I want you to deal with the text. What does that mean? God is so sovereign that even the ploys of the prostitute and the beast that they try to enact against the church, God is like, well, I had them do that. I put it in there. Now, you might look at it and go, no, no. It says God has put into their hearts 
to carry out his purpose by being of one mind in their rebellion against the prostitute. But that's not what it says. By being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. The peoples, the nations, the languages, the cultures around the world that go, we want power, we want wealth, we want immorality. We can do that together if we unite in the sense of handing over our power to this beast, the kings and the governors of the world that are empowered by the people. One crazy dude isn't going to rise to the top. It's the crazy dude that rises to the top on the backs of people who put the dude there. Now the text tells us that God put it into their heart to, in unison, give power over to the beast. And before this turns into a whole other sermon, I didn't want to ignore it. I also don't want it to be a whole other sermon. I just want to quickly say that we have to grapple with this. And to be clear, Scripture makes clear God does not sin and God does not tempt anyone to sin. So it can't mean that. It can't mean that here's the innocent nations, innocent people bopping along in the world and God was like, hey, psst, how about you rebel against me so I can kill you later? It can't mean that if there's unity of Scripture. God doesn't lie. God doesn't sin. God doesn't tempt. But here it says God put it in them to do that. And I think what it means is, the best I can explain it, is not that he put the evil there to do it. The evil is already there. He just put the strategy. The idea to unite. And let's all do this together so that in unison they can rise against the church and then he can do the final put down. It's God's way of wrapping things up instead of letting this thing persist. But he didn't put the sin there. He didn't put the evil there. You go back and read the whole thing with Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh's heart hard or did God harden it? What's the answer to that? Yes. How does God do that without tempting Pharaoh, without making Pharaoh sinful, uh, without lying to Pharaoh, and without committing sin himself? That's difficult to work out, but don't work it out by going, God doesn't do those things. God doesn't harden hearts. What is the point of all this, to get nerdy at the end of a sermon? No, to go back to the initial point. God wins. This is not a yin-yang, you know, Satan is not God's long-lost brother, equal power, but God just barely ekes out a win at the end of it. Satan cannot match the power of God. And even Satan's clever ideas, God scoffs at that. You think that was your idea? I have full control of this chess match. Every move, down to the piece, down to how long it takes you to move a piece, God is in control. That doesn't mean he is the producer of sin. It means that evil cannot hold a candle to the righteous plan of God. And our response to that is not, ooh, God, you're kind of a little darker than I thought you were. No, not dark at all. In him, there's no darkness at all. The darkness is in us and in our futile minds to comprehend big things. Our takeaway is, man, God, I, I dare not question you. I think my world's going to come apart because I got canceled at work. Like there's no other job available. There's not going to be any food in my pantry. Wasn't Jesus pretty plain? Don't worry. You see the sparrow? That's all cute and everything. That's worthy of a mug and a, and a Christian pillow. Until it's your job. 
until someone demands something of you that you know is grievous and abominable. And they want to force you to do it because they are not content for you to live righteously. They, t- they talk about tolerance. They are intolerant. Completely intolerant of any voice that would go against their detestable drink. And God's call is for you to go, no, 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 you're secure in the book of life. Don't worry about the stuff that happens here. That's not a promise that everything goes okay because saints die. She's drinking the blood of martyrs. Those people, God didn't turn things around for them. But they conquered in the end, even through death. Now we encourage each other, we support each other to take comfort only in the victory of Christ, not to take comfort in the things that the world offers. That's how we conquer. That's how we endure. That's how we win. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about the various ways that uh, we are tempted in this world. There's so many ways, and whether it's the deceitfulness of riches, the promise of wealth or comfort, um, doctrines that are more palatable, versions, distorted versions of your son that are easier to follow. Uh, We reject all those things, and we ask you to lead us in paths of righteousness. We ask you to not lead us into areas of tribulation, trial, temptation, but instead deliver us from the evil one. You've promised it, and we cling to that promise and rejoice that we are on the winning team in Christ. Help us to be faithful out there in the playing field. Help us to break this huddle with confidence that you know what you're doing. You've got the ultimate game plan. We just need to follow through with what you've given us no matter what the world says or how they threaten us. Give us boldness, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You closing the song together with me.